don't want to reread the whole chapter that you already read, but I do want to focus your attention to verse number 11, where it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come into the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The title of my sermon this evening is The False Stories of Christ. And that's just so we don't get the YouTube channel taken down. It's really the Jewish stories of Christ. And I basically just want to go through the Bible tonight, specifically in the New Testament, and look at some of the different lies throughout Jesus' life. And then at the end, look at what the story is today, basically, about Jesus. One of the stories that is going around today. But the first thing that they really tried to do after Jesus died was basically to make the resurrection seem like it was fake or that the disciples orchestrated it. And you see that right here. They're literally paying the soldiers to tell a lie that the disciples came and stole the body away so that they can, you know, make it seem like there wasn't any validity to their story. Because in the Jews' perspective, if you can get Jesus Christ killed and he's dead and he's just in a tomb, then that's it. You know, if he never rises again, his bones just sit there, then that's fine. But the thing is, you come three days later, just like he said, his body's gone. It really makes the story valid that that happens. So then they try to spread the lie that his body was stolen. We'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And we see something here. You know, it wasn't just a few women and a few of the disciples that saw Jesus. The Bible says that over 500 people saw him before he ascended back up into heaven. Verse number one, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first all of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So the thing is, you have a couple Jews try to give some money to soldiers and make the story seem like it's not valid. But the thing is, you have all these witnesses that just match up and that are going to back this story up over 500 people at one time on top of the disciples that saw him, on top of the Apostle Paul who last saw him, and all these different situations where they're physically seeing the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It can't be denied, but the reason that anybody could deny it today is because of a lie and because of bribery to go and say that the disciples came and stole the body away. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And this is really where I want to spend most of the time uh, tonight dealing with this specific issue but it's the idea that the Jews are the ones that are responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ. And that is today the most anti-Semitic thing that you could ever come up with and say. It's the, that's what the Nazis propagated and why the Holocaust happened and all these different things. And it's just such a horrible, horrible thing to say today. But it's also literally what the Bible says word for word. And, you know, I don't want to just stay in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight 
We're going to go all throughout the Gospels in multiple passages. This is probably the most scripture I've ever had in a sermon because of how sensitive people are on this issue. But the Bible just talks so much about it. It's undeniable. But First uh, Thessalonians chapter number 2, look at verse 14. It says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. It literally says in verse 15, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now the thing is, so many people have come up today. I mean, it's funny. You can look at any other subject and, and just look up this. Uh, just basically, if you go on Google and just type in, if you can't remember where a specific verse is, you know most of the verse, but you can't remember the reference for it. I'll do it a lot in sermon prep. And basically, just type in the verse into Google, and then it'll pop up and tell you where that verse is. If you type in, uh, who both killed the Lord Jesus? Nothing. You know what you get? A bunch of fact check articles explaining how anti-Semitic it is to say that the Jews killed Jesus and how it's not true. And you literally have the Pope who uh, came out. I don't remember which one it was. But a Pope threw his own country under the bus to spare the Jews. And just like, oh, no, the Romans did it. Like, Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Romans that did it. The Jews didn't do anything. It, it's literally what the Bible says, okay? But so here's the thing. Let's just play a game tonight. Let's just pretend the Jews weren't the ones that killed Jesus. It was the Romans that did it. Okay. Could we get them for attempted murder? Because what about all of the times all throughout the Gospels that the Jews are trying to kill Jesus and then he's able to escape? Okay. And then all of a sudden at the end of the story, he finally gets killed, captured by the Jews, and then all of a sudden dies. But the Jews aren't the ones that killed him. It was the Romans that carried out the crucifixion. We're just going to look at a lot of these stories tonight. So go to Matthew chapter number two. You know, in the Christmas season, and we're thinking a lot about the birth of Christ. Well, you know what happened right after Jesus was born? News got to Herod, the current king of Judea, that the new king of the Jews was born. And one of the most wicked things that he could possibly do kills every child aged two and under in the whole entire city of Bethlehem. Look at uh, verse number one. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when we had called privily of the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I, all, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before him till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house of Mary, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. 
And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. This guy literally kills every single child aged two and under in the entire city. And we're anti-Semitic for saying that they killed Jesus Christ. If God didn't warn them to leave Bethlehem, he would have been able to kill Jesus there. Who was he? The king of Judea. He was a Jew. He was threatened by this situation, attempts to kill him, but then it's anti-Semitic to say, well, he just attempted to murder him, okay? And this isn't one instance. This is the first instance before Jesus was even you know, walking around. He's trying to get murdered by Herod. So this is just hatred from the very beginning. Uh, Luke chapter number 4. Luke chapter number 4, where we see uh, Jesus basically for the first time declare that he has come from God and their response to it in verse number 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in synagogue fastened on him, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered about the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three and six months, uh, when great famine was throughout all the land. But none of them was Elias sent, save Septa, a city of Sidon, a woman that was a widow. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman and the Syrian. So, in my opinion, the reason that Jesus doesn't do anything that they're asking is they were coming to Jesus basically for a show. And you can see in other instances and other accounts of the Gospels where people are coming to Jesus, Jews specifically, telling him to perform a miracle like he's some kind of magician and him not doing it because of their unbelief. And these people here are basically, they're from his own country. He claims and shows that he's directly from God and they're just like, this is Joseph's son. If you're really it, do a miracle then. And he's just saying, no, I'm not going to do a miracle because they didn't really believe. They wanted to see a miracle in order to believe. But if you'll notice, Jesus performs miracles only for those who will believe when you're reading throughout this. So these are people that didn't believe. And so what's their response to him saying that he's not going to do anything? It says, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on his way. 
And so right here, you have Jews that, listen, they're coming out of a synagogue. Who's, who goes to synagogues? Jews. And they take Jesus and try to throw him off of a cliff head first so that he breaks his neck and dies. Okay? That was Jews. All right? Jews attempted to murder Jesus for a second time now in this that we're going on. And so, yeah, they weren't able to actually go all the way through with it and get it, but they attempted to murder him by throwing him off of a cliff. John chapter number 5. See another story. Th- these stories aren't difficult to find. I mean, it's like every other chapter. You got, I mean, it's pretty much every account of the Gospels. It's like you're reading through it, one chapter, the Jews are trying to kill Jesus, Jesus gets away, talks to the disciples for a little bit, explains different truths to them, Jews come back along and try to kill him, escape all the way leading up until the crucifixion. This, he, he dealt with this the entire time that he was doing ministry. The entire situation dealing with persecution from the Jews. John chapter number 5 and verse number 1 It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, and troubled the water. Whosoever then, after the troubling of the water, stepped in and was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity of thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then then asked they him, Which man is it which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Now, the reason that they just got so mad here is because one of the biggest things that the Pharisees had and the biggest problems that the Jews had today was purely just power. Just power-hungry people, Uh, lording over the things of God to be as powerful as they possibly could be. And ultimately, right here, they've got, they're the ones that think they have the law. They're confronting this guy with the law, and he's basically saying, hey, some guy came along and healed me, and he told me to take up my bed. And so it's basically that guy's word, whoever the mysterious person is that healed this guy against the Pharisees. And that guy is listening to, um, the, the guy that was healed is listening to Jesus instead immediately the Pharisees are mad because somebody else is over this person, somebody else other than them, and they take real issue with it and immediately are inquiring, who is it that told you that you were allowed to take up your bed and walk? And in verse 13 it says, And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And, but Jesus answered, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So here you have the Jews again. You know, here's what we're addressing, the most anti-Semitic thing in the world, saying that the Jews are responsible for killing Jesus. You have the Jews angry at Jesus 
And it specifically tells you why, because he makes himself equal with God and they don't believe him and are diligently seeking to kill him. Okay? But it's anti-Semitic to say that the Jews killed Jesus because the Jews didn't kill Jesus, the Romans killed Jesus. It had nothing to do with the Jews. I mean, you have a whole group, a whole nation of people desperately seeking his head, okay? And then later on, eventually we'll see that he dies. And, and the thing is, this isn't just a one-time story. There's the other situation that's a very similar thing to this where uh, Jesus heals another guy that was blind, and he goes to the Jews, and the Jews are just mad that a guy received sight and because of the fact that it could have come from Jesus. And this guy's own mother and father disown him for the Jews. You know, imagine having a son that's born blind, and then some guy comes along and is able to give your son sight. You know, just think for a second what it would be like if you just couldn't see. You know, you had to live blind. And imagine then seeing that on your child. And for their whole entire life, up in their adult life, and then you hear the great news one day that all of a sudden your son receives sight, but because of the fear of the Jews, you're not even allowed to be happy for your own child receiving sight. And you know, this is, listen, this isn't just something that was going on back then. They have the same exact power today. And there are so many people desperately, desperately afraid of the Jews, willing to disown their families, willing to disown their whole entire friends for the sake of just saying some of the stuff that the Bible just spells out plainly and that's just observable in society, you know? But so this is a really big thing that a lot of people can't clearly explain, but it's on every page of the New Testament. It's, I don't see how people can't see this, but I think that a lot of it just has to do with uh, different things around us and our observations. And when you just have so many people saying one thing, it's easy to get misled. But that's why it's so important to just read and study your Bible on your own so you don't get misled in different things. Uh, verse number 48 in John chapter number 8, it says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast the devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be like a liar unto you, but I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Another incident where basically, just like we read earlier, where they all lay hands on him and try to throw him off the cliff, same exact thing here. They all just gather up stones, but right as they're throwing, he's just able to, I don't know, finesse his way out of there and escape. You know, and so it's just another instance where they're trying to kill him. And just a side note, when you have Muslims uh, bring up the objection to you that there's no place in the Bible where Jesus specifically calls himself God, that he, he'll refer to himself as the Son of God or any of these other things, but he never refers to himself directly as God. 
John chapter 8 and verse 58, he clearly refers to himself as God. And you can tell that based on the context and the way that the Jews respond to him. Him saying before Abraham was, I am, is referencing in the book of Exodus where God said, I am that I am. And it's very clear because they immediately take up stones to murder him for blasphemy here in their minds. And so it's very clear what he was communicating here. It's the Jesus being God is not just some wild fable that the disciples came up with. They're always trying to get you. It's a gotcha question that you need to find the words in red where he claims to be God. John 8, 58, mark it down. That's where he said it. And, you know, if that's not enough for them, it's because they don't believe the Bible, you know. But it's very, very clear in there. Uh, John chapter number 11. One more example of the attempted murder of Jesus in John chapter number 11. So this is familiar. A lot of people are familiar with uh, John 11.35. We've all got it memorized. Jesus wept. If no, if you're having trouble with Bible memorization, you can start with John 11.35 and memorize it right now. Jesus wept. Two words and, and you've got it. Uh, but later on, after Lazarus is raised, uh, the Jews understand how powerful Jesus is going to become if word of this gets around, which it is going to get around. Lazarus was dead for four days. It seemed like a situation that was impossible. And all Jesus did was just come and tell him to come forth, and he came out, and he's perfectly alive, just like any of these other times. But in verse number 46, we see, again, a negative reaction from the Jews. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them all, Ye know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the whole people, that the whole nation perish not. And thus he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country in the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out in the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as he stood in the temple, What think ye that he will come to the feast? Uh, now both chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man should know where he were, that he should show it, that they might take him. So they're specifically right now scheming, devising a plan to capture Jesus, to take him, and to kill him. And so this is getting really close to when the actual crucifixion happens. And you've got the chief priests wagering here and talking, trying to come up with a plan because they know that he will do it. And here's the thing that's so wicked. And, you know, if you want to come up with some difference in your mind about the Jews of this day, the Jews that you see in the New Testament, and the Jews of today... I believe the Jews of today when they say they don't believe that Jesus Christ came from God or any of these other things. Here we have first-hand witnesses time and time and time again hearing, seeing all the miracles of Jesus and their response to these miracles is we've got to kill this guy because he's going to take all the power from us. Okay, I think that the Jews in the end knew who Jesus was. I don't really think there were very many people that were 
in terms of the chief priests and the Pharisees, I don't think there were too many people that were just bewildered at who he was and genuinely thinking, oh, this is just a blasphemer. They saw Jesus as a threat and they valued their power more than they valued their eternity. And they didn't want to let go of their power. And I believe that these people knew who Jesus was, knew he was the son of God, but didn't care. They're witnessing amazing miracle like you have with Lazarus here, raising him up from the dead and their immediate reaction. We've got to kill this guy. He's getting too powerful. What a wicked attitude. You literally have a guy dead, perform a miracle like nobody's ever seen before, and with a snap of the fingers, it's just immediately, all right, we need to all get together, get a council together, we need to kill this guy because he's getting too powerful. And put verse 48 in your memory bank uh, where it says, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Remember that because it's going to come up towards the end of the sermon. Uh, so if you want to put a bookmark in John chapter 11 or something, we might come back to it. But go to Matthew chapter number 26 now. So now we're getting into the actual uh, story of the crucifixion and the betrayal of Jesus and everything. So here, here's where all the dispute comes in. Who was it that killed Jesus? Was it the Romans or was it the Jews? And everybody in the whole entire planet wants to scream, it was the Romans, it was the Romans, it was the Romans, to the point where you literally have popes condemning their own nation in place of sparing the Jews in this. But look what it says, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So right here, you have Judas, 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 Going to the chief priests and Pharisees, okay, who are these? Are, are Romans chief priests and Pharisees? No, Jews, devising a plan and getting a covenant made with them and a return for 30 pieces of silver to deliver Jesus to them. For what purpose? To kill him, okay? That, that's the whole purpose of all of this. And so he makes the deal with the Jews for turning over Jesus for the purpose of being killed. Uh, skip down to verse number 47. It says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with a great multitude of swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people, now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. So right there, Judas comes up and he um, comes to get Jesus. Now, who were who the people that came and captured him? Was he with a bunch of Romans or was he with a bunch of Jews, the people that he actually made the deal with? It was the Jews, all right? Again, the Jews are the ones that he makes the deal with. Now, the Jews, after they get him, then they turn him over to the Romans. All right? Now, go to the next chapter in Matthew chapter number 27 and read about what happened. So, in uh, chapter number 27, he's delivered over to the Romans. They've given him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, for him to decide what his fate is. Now, look at verse number 15 of Matthew chapter number 27. It says, now at that feast, the governor was wont to release the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, 
whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? So here's the thing. Barabbas is a notable prisoner because of how wicked and evil of a person he is. All right, this is a murderer. This is somebody that's in there for a big deal. It would be like if we basically had, I don't know, if we found out about someone in this town that, you know, went and shot and killed an entire family or something, and everybody knows this guy's name. You know, when someone's notable for a crime, it means that they probably committed a really bad crime, okay? And it doesn't say he's a notable person. It says he's a notable prisoner because of something that he did was really bad. So Pilate basically tries to play a trick here where he's like, okay, this really awful person that no one in their right mind would want released into the public or Jesus, you know, and all the different people somehow scream out Barabbas. Look, let's look at why. Verse number 18, for he knew that envy, that for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor then answered and said unto them, Whether of the train, the twain will ye that I release unto you, they said Barabbas. So you have who? Is it the Romans that are going through and saying, hey, tell him that you want Barabbas instead of Jesus? No, it was the Jews. It's the Jews convincing an entire multitude of people. Hey, this guy that goes around and heals people and raises people from the dead and has never even committed one single sin and that's just done nothing but good, nothing but miracles, say that he needs to be crucified and let the notable murderer go. Okay, and all of these people, the whole multitude is screaming out, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. That doesn't even make sense. But it shows you how powerful these people were. And it shows why they're so, you know, when you think about, you know, sometimes I look into these stories and just think like, man, it's, it's ridiculous. The Son of God is in your face and you just aren't willing to give up your power. But when you're reading through stories like this, you understand how much power they actually had. And, you know, power does crazy things to people where you can stare the son of God in the face and say that he should be crucified over a notable murderer. All right. But these people are going out powerful people, chief priests. You know, imagine if a famous politician that you liked came up to you and told you specifically to do something, you know, and it might, you know, if it's just toss up, you don't really care. I think a lot of the Jews in that day we're probably looking at Jesus like, you know, ah, I don't really know about this guy. I don't know much and just trying to see more. But then all of a sudden you have the Pharisees come along and just push him off the edge. You know, they're sitting on the fence. They just get pushed right back onto the side of the Pharisees. And they're screaming at them and telling them that they should have Barabbas and kill Jesus. Verse 21, the governor answered and said unto them, uh, whether the train will you that I release unto you, they said Barabbas. Verse 22, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. So who is he talking to? A multitude of Jews that are persuaded specifically by the chief priests and Pharisees. Even if for some reason this entire, which it's clearly the entire multitude is Jews. Even if the whole multitude isn't Jews, the chief priests and Pharisees are the ones that are manipulating the multitude in the first place to tell them that Jesus needs to be crucified. And so you have Pilate who's doing everything that he can other than ruling with an iron fist and saying, no, he hasn't done anything wrong. But Pilate is basically up there saying that I'm not going to do this. There's nothing that he did. You know, it's, there's no reason for this. 
And they specifically are saying, let him be crucified. And so verse number 24 says, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Notice this. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. This is a bunch of anti-Semitic Jews. You know, saying the most anti-Semitic thing in the world, that Jesus' blood is on them, the Jews. It's clear as day. These people are begging for the blood of Jesus to be on them. Not in a good way. They're begging that, hey, we killed this guy. We took him out. We destroyed him. Now, I don't really think that Pilate can just claim that he's innocent because he's ultimately the one that is sentencing him. You know, you can't just go out and, you know, commit a crime or something, a hit and run, and then basically, well, I didn't mean to do that, or I didn't try to do that, wash your hands and act like you're not clean of it. At the end of the day, yes, Pilate is the one who sentenced Jesus to this crucifixion. The Romans are the ones that physically carried out the crucifixion. And so it's like the Jews kind of have a back door into this where they can try to claim, oh, no, we weren't the ones that did it. The Romans did it. But we're following this train all the way from the moment Jesus was born, and they bring news to Herod that he's born, and he's always trying to be killed. You know, I mean, to the point where every child in the city of Bethlehem was murdered just at the suspicion that he could be Jesus. And then you just see over and over and over again the Jews dealing with Jesus, trying to murder him, and then at the pinnacle of the story, you have a bunch of Jews come in with one of his disciples that was bought off by the Jews, come in and slay him, and then it's like, well, they capture him to deliver him to the Romans, to slay him, and it's like, Romans did it, not the Jews. The Jews have been the ones pursuing him this entire time. And it's not like he did something that made the Romans mad, and then all of a sudden, you know, they didn't want to do it. But, you know, Jesus never did anything to the Romans. He never harmed the Romans. The reason that it happened was because Pontius Pilate was a limp-wristed ruler that had a just man sitting right beside him. He knew through conversation with him. He knew through seeing what was going on. He did every little weaselly thing that he could to try to get out of this crucifixion, but because he had no spine, just crucified Jesus anyways. And so if you want to make the argument, well, it was the Romans that carried it out. Yeah, it was, but it was because there was a spineless leader that was easily influenced by the multitude of people standing in front of him that was a bunch of Jews that specifically begged that they be the ones and their children charged for the crime of murdering Jesus. That's exactly what happened there. Now, here's the thing that's important to understand, all right, because we're sitting here and we're arguing about a sensitive subject, and not just when it comes to the Jews, but basically this story is where our salvation comes from, in Jesus dying on the cross, bearing our sins, and all these other things. So you don't really want to look at it like Jesus dying on the cross was just a big negative. You know, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is what we believe in in our salvation, okay? So the important thing to understand, John chapter number 10 and verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So when you're looking back through the different stories in the beginning, where basically the first time Jesus testifies of himself that he's God, and you have all these people lay hands on him and try to throw him off of the cliff, does it make sense that basically one guy that an entire multitude of people can come through is just able to just swerve on out of there and they're, you know, they just have no idea? 
No. It, I, honestly, that was a miracle in and of itself. That was an act of God that he's able to escape that kind of a situation. And that's just like when you're reading in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul stoned. Okay, Do you understand what stoning is? It's literally just pummeling someone with rocks until they're obviously dead. And the Apostle Paul gets stoned and then is able to just stand up and walk away. Okay, that's, that's not like, oh, they didn't stone him good enough. No, they stoned him completely to death. It was a miracle of God that kept him alive. Okay, and so these situations where you see Jesus, people laying hands on him to hold him, he's not just getting lucky in these escapes. He's the one that had the power to lay his life down for himself. So, you know, in one aspect, I want to attribute the death of Christ to Jesus. Uh, death of Christ to Jesus. Yeah, I want to, attra- I want to attribute the death of Christ to Jesus because the Jews didn't win. The Jews got Jesus and he surrendered to them for us, okay? He laid down his life himself, but in terms of who's the people that got him captured, who's the people that he laid his life down to, it was the Jews, all right? He laid it down himself. He received that commandment from his father. He came here. He was born to die and pay for the sins of the whole entire world, and that's what he did when he died on the cross. But the thing is, While the crucifixion is a good thing and we're happy that Jesus came and that he died on the cross and he paid for all of our sins, you don't want to be the one carrying that crucifixion out, okay? And so it it wasn't good to be a Roman in that story. It wasn't good to be Pontius Pilate in that story. It really, really, really wasn't good to be the Jews in that story. And the Jews were the ones that were begging for the credit, and so I will give them the credit and be called majorly anti-Semitic for it, all right? But so here's the thing about today, you know, It's an undeniable fact that Jesus existed on this earth, all right? You know, people don't sit around and argue about whether or not he's a historical figure that existed at one time. Atheists, Muslims, Jews, Christians, and pretty much everybody else will all agree Jesus was a physical human being that lived and breathed on this earth. Where the disagreement comes in is on who Jesus was and what he did. That's where all the different stories come along. So, the Jewish story today, and this is from everybody's favorite Jew that's on our side, Ben Shapiro, uh, did an interview with Joe Rogan. Everybody loves this guy, and I just, you know, he can convince people that men can't become women. Big whoop. That's not that hard, okay? You know, so, Ben Shapiro, this well-spoken Jew that everybody loves, that is conservative, and that is just the savior of the conservative party, He's on the Joe Rogan show, and basically Joe Rogan asks him, you know, what do you believe about Jesus, and what's your thoughts on Jesus? And here's what Ben Shapiro explained in his story. It was only like a minute and a half long. That Jesus existed, but basically that Jesus was a war criminal who tried to lead a revolution against the Romans, and so that's why the Romans crucified him, because he was trying to lead all the Jews in to take over Rome, and then he was crucified for that, and that he doesn't believe in the resurrection, and that he doesn't believe that Jesus was divine. And he's saying that basically, you know, with the resurrection, that the Jews don't believe in that kind of stuff. You know, basically, Jews don't believe in the types of miracles that Jesus did. Oh, like ones that were similar to the ones that were in the Old Testament, which you claim to believe? You know, but so, that this is basically what Jesus was. Now, remember what we read earlier in John chapter 11 and verse 48. What were the Pharisees scared of when it came to Jesus, after you raised Lazarus from the dead, after they see how powerful he is, what is it that they're scared of? It says, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. 
So they're saying, the Jews of that day are saying, if Jesus rises to power, the Romans are going to come and take us over. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't some, you know, Jewish guy that was going to come along and give them all the power in the world and take over the world for them. He came for the world. And so he wasn't really concerned with who was in power in Jerusalem or any of these other things. He came to give himself for everybody. And the Jews of that day were scared. Now Jesus, according to Ben Shapiro, is leading a revolution against the Romans. Then why were they scared of the Romans coming and taking over? You know, that doesn't even make sense. But then also, why is there a multitude of people begging for them to be taken over. Why are they complaining when Pilate writes king of the Jews over his cross? All these different, It doesn't even make sense in one bit. But here's what it comes down to. The Jews don't believe anything about the Bible. Jews claim to believe the Old Testament, or if they don't claim the Old Testament, they claim at least the first five books of the Bible. They claim the Talmud and all these other different things. But they don't believe a word of it. Jesus said, well... In John chapter number 5, For ye had believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me, but ye, if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? The people of that day never believed the Bible. The people that are Jews today don't believe a word of the Bible. Because that's the thing. Even when he was on there and explaining how, you know, all Jews don't believe in the weird miracles and stuff that Jesus did, he was even talking about the parting of the Red Sea, almost like from an atheist perspective where, oh, you know, it was just the wind that came and blew the water apart and then they were able to walk through. You know, yeah, it was an act of God, but easily explainable by natural events. No, it was the act of God that caused such an event like that to happen. You know, it's not even close. Especially when you're reading that story. The things that I hear people do with the parting of the Red Sea story is ridiculous, okay? Whether it's like, oh, it was just really shallow water, or, you know, it was just the wind that did that. Have you ever seen wind just blow a massive wall where the water is just like walls on the side of you, like you're walking through a massive aquarium? And the thing is, it, they talk about it like, oh, it was just really shallow water that they were able to pass through. Okay, then why did all of the chariots behind them get completely swallowed up in the water that they couldn't even continue to go on? All right? It, it's ridiculous. All right? And what it ultimately is, is it's unbelief. It's that they don't believe a word of it. They don't believe the Old Testament. They don't believe the New Testament. They're not a reliable source of information. Don't listen to the people that tell you, oh, go get an Old Testament commentary written by Jewish people so you understand more of their customs and all that. Listen, they missed the biggest, most important thing in the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. I don't care about a little thing that they did and that it might help me understand one verse better. They missed the whole entire message of it. They don't believe a word of it. I'm not interested. All right? And you know what? Here's the thing that comes down to it. This story from the Jews is constantly changing, all right, in terms of what can we do to explain that Jesus was not who he said he was? What can we do to explain that Jesus wasn't the Son of God or that he wasn't any of these other things? And so it starts out with, oh, his disciples stole his body away. Now it's, you know, it's arguing about uh, who it was that really killed Jesus. The Jews didn't have anything to do with it. We're completely abstained from it. And now it's just, oh, you know, he was just killed by the Romans because he tried to lead a revolution. You know what it is? It's that they hate Jesus 
They hate God, everything about it, and are just trying to throw whatever they can at a wall and see what sticks. And so the story is going to change all the time. If you pulled five random Jews off the street and asked them their story on Jesus Christ, all five stories would be different. But you know what remains the same? The hatred for Jesus Christ in the end of it. But you know what remains the same on our part? Literally every word of the story. All right? It doesn't change. You know what? We believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what? We believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That will not change. You can look back through any statement of Christianity, even people that we don't like and would say probably weren't even saved. You know what they would claim? Jesus was the Son of God. You know what else they would claim? Jesus was born of a virgin. You know what else? Jesus performed all the miracles that were said. You know what? Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies that he claimed to fulfill. You know what the Jews are doing? Just throwing whatever lie they can at the wall, hoping that it sticks. The story is going to continue to change. The story has always changed, but our story remains the same. Why? Because what we say is from the Bible. Why? Because we actually believe the Bible. And when you're dealing with a group of people that doesn't believe any word of it, don't waste your time trying to convince them of anything of it. You know, they are the exact same people that they were when you're reading about it then. It's a waste of time. It's not going to, you know, come up with it. And I always joke when people always ask me, what are you going to preach about? I always say I'm going to do it with the Jews. I really couldn't resist it this week when I have my pastor on the other side of the world in Israel posting all these pictures of these Jews making out with the wailing wall and doing these weird dances and all these other things just standing out there in outer darkness I couldn't resist it, man. These people, they are totally antichrist in every way, shape, or form. They deny everything about the Bible, and I'm just kind of sick of people worshiping them like they're something worth worshiping. Jesus is the thing worth worshiping, and they spit in the face of him. They completely deny him. They say that he's burning in hell, and I just have no patience for it. And we as a society, we as a church, should have no patience for it. It's a cancer. It's a horrible thing. It's infected so many churches, and it's honestly infected our nation. And it's just, it's, it's destroying the nation. And, you know, call me a Nazi, call me whatever. This is just what the Bible says, okay? This is the most Bible I've ever used in a sermon. I don't think I could put more in it. The whole sermon would just be reading the Bible, and you all get bored and do something else. You know, I, I felt like that as I was reading through some of the different stories. It was really long stories, but how detailed is the Bible And that the Jews were actively seeking the life of Jesus and eventually he laid it down for them. It's clear and plain as day. Our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ, not a bunch of Christ-rejecting Jews in Israel and Christ-rejecting Jews in America trying to influence the things over here. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, just thank you for all that you've done, Lord. Just thank you for uh, saving us and ultimately laying your life down in that situation, Lord. We know that you didn't have to, that you could have ultimately conquered the world and done all those different things, but you laid yourself down as a sacrifice for us. Just pray that you would help us to remain true on these things and not get caught up in the different Jewish fables of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.